Alrighty, fellas, a quick service announcement real quick before we jump into the podcast. So we actually had some audio difficulties just due to having an internet guest. Um, The connection was jumping and popping kind of at the end, in and out of connection. So we really appreciate you guys understanding that that's just part of the nature of the beast when you have online guests. Sometimes internet connection doesn't always meet up to standard. So anyways, we still had some great information. So we're going to go ahead and push this podcast out to you guys. And thanks again for tuning in. And we'll jump right into the podcast. This episode of the Duck Gun Podcast proudly brought to you by Gunner Kennels. Gunner Kennels, the market's only double-walled, roto-molded dog crate, and a five-star crash test-rated kennel. These American-made boxes come with a lifetime warranty, and the guys over at Gunner Kennels have done some crazy testing just to show how strong they really are, like dropping 4,000 pounds on it, hammering it with a 630-pound sled, tossing it off a 200-foot cliff, and shooting it with a 12-gauge at seven paces with no pellet penetration. You're hitting the road with your dog this season. Gunner Kennels is your safest bet. Protect your best friend and protect your investment. Hey guys, I'm Jordan Fromer. I believe in hunting hard, hunting smart, and having a fun time while doing it. And shooting limits? Well, that's just the icing on the cake. I revel in the journey just as much as the successes it brings. From ducks to dogs to decoys and guns, we'll be talking tactics, strategies, and what it takes to get the job done. Load up and take aim. This is the Duck Gun Podcast. What's going on, folks? Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Duck Gun Podcast. On this week, we're joined by Don from Southern Oak Kennels, and they're pretty much the sister facility to Barton Ramsey's Southern Oak Kennels that's in Louisiana, and we talk all about gun dogs. So now, a quick word from our partners, and we'll jump right into the content. Hey guys, Tim from HTR here. If you really want to get your group up front and in the action, check out our new HTR A-frame. Hunt anywhere, concealed. It sets up and takes down in less time than it takes to put your waders on. We've developed our own camo patterns for a better hide, with more designs coming. We have you covered from the sides and the top. Oh, and did I mention, our A-frame is only 10 pieces out of the box? Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and on htrinnovations.com. Hey guys, another great company that we have partnered with is Sportsman Taxidermy. And we had Corey on the podcast not too long ago, so jump back, check that one out. Really great content there. Um, But they do everything from waterfowl, deers, turkey, and they've even done a lion at their shop. It's award-winning taxidermy, and they're out of Belton, Missouri. Um, You can reach them at... 816-331-5171 or email at taxidermy at outlook.com and did I mention if you're not in the area they also do shipping so that's great be sure to check them out guys we'd like to give a big thanks to our partners over at white rock decoys be a nomad and get out further with more decoys with their lightweight system of windsocks silhouettes and fully collapsible floater decoys we'd also like to give a big thanks to our partners over at Bailey's Game Calls. These 3D printed plastic calls are made in America, highly customizable and floating. They also have a patent pending on the density of their calls which allows them to mimic wood and acrylic calls. Be sure to check out Bailey's Game Calls for your next duck or goose call. What's going on folks? I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles. Got my co-host Elliot alongside me from Freelance Duck Hunting and our guest for tonight is Don from Southern Oak Kennels. How you doing tonight, Don? Hey, not too bad, guys. How's it going? Oh. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're glad you're still upbeat after all our technical <laughs> difficulties. We normally do this on YouTube live stream and just had so many problems. We're having to record this um, off air and it's been a good wait. So sorry for... Sorry for the delays, but this is going to be good, I think. Yeah, no problem. I'm ready to go. All right. Well, you want to give us a little bit of background about who you are and what you got going on there at uh, Southern Oak Kennels? Yeah, basically, uh, we're Southern Oak Kennels North. We're uh, running, the obviously, the northern branch located central southern Michigan. Um, and I think... The big goal for us to be in the location we're at is just to have a resource for people kind of in the Midwest, in the northern Midwest, to uh, have a location to purchase puppies from Southern Oak Kennels 
get that Southern Oak Kennels experience without, you know, driving to the middle of Mississippi to do so. Uh, we, we are breeding and training facilities, kind of a, a one-stop deal. We uh, breed puppies and also train gun dogs, uh, basic obedience training, pretty much the, the whole deal. Cool. So how we had Barton on here earlier in our podcast, and he was an extremely impressive individual. Um, can you kind of give us a background of yourself and how you got into this and how I'm assuming that Barton brought you in, but if I'm wrong, um, correct me on that. No, um, basically uh, we had two trainers up here, myself and Wally Shalab. Uh, Wally does a majority <laughs> training on the dogs um i started you know midwest kid uh hunting whitetail rabbits you name it uh we hunted pretty much everything from from the time i could uh and then that usually always involved a dog of some type but started with beagles um ran beagles and then coon hounds and then you know just as i matured and didn't have as much time to spend my love for duck hunting and waterfowl hunting kind of led to Labradors because I didn't have to travel to train them. I could do a lot of the training in the yard. Um, it was, you know, it wasn't a huge event to go train a lab. So that's kind of how I got into the Labradors um, and Chesapeake. So I ran Chesapeake's for a few years also. And then uh, Wally and myself started training together probably about five or six years ago now. and we really started looking at the type of dog that uh, we wanted to train, um, you know, and start a small kennel with. And that kind of led us down the road of the British Labradors and meeting Barton. Um, you know, we bought our first dog from Barton probably four years ago now. And uh, we just kept adding to the pile of dogs that we were getting from him. And then, you know, the, Friendship kind of grew from there. We would do training weekends down in Mississippi with Barton and his group of friends. And just as our business grew and his business grew, it just really kind of made sense to uh, to bring us on as Southern Oak Kennels North and, you know, kind of be that resource for him and his client base in, in the Midwest. So, so that's a little bit of the background on that for sure. Cool. And uh, are you guys, uh, I know one thing he does is the um, Gundog Academy. Is that part of your guys' program as well? Cornerstone Gundog Academy, um, that is his other business that he's involved in. Um, we're not directly involved with Cornerstone Gundog Academy, but indirectly we do use a lot of the training methods and, you know, the philosophy that, is within that system is the philosophy we train with uh, up here as well. So, um, you know, not being directly a part of Cornerstone, we still promote Cornerstone as it is, you know, kind of essential to what we do up here as trainers. And also, um, people who start off with Cornerstone, when they take that puppy home at eight weeks old, and then they're socializing the puppy for those first few months, and they're getting... They're teaching the puppy how to learn those few first few months before we get it back for training. The people who start off with Cornerstone um, make our jobs a lot easier because typically those puppies, when we get them, we can jump right into the gun dog training and we don't have to spend, you know, a month or sometimes more trying to clean up the obedience to get them to the level of being able to be trained for uh, a gun dog. So. It's definitely some benefit to that up front for sure. And then on the backside of it, when they go home, now they have a library of drills that they can use to keep the dog sharp, kind of to protect that investment, if you will. So, you know, they've spent the money on having a dog trained. Now they get that dog home, they can protect their investment by using Cornerstone to keep them sharp, to keep them drilled. And it's fairly simple for them to follow follow right along on the screen and make sure that they're they're doing it correctly so it's definitely a good resource for us to have uh as a trainer for sure 
you're talking about philosophy. Can you give a brief overview of the general philosophy that you guys follow and can maybe how that differs from um, either, a, I don't know if it's a more traditional philosophy or just possibly other philosophies out there? Um, for us, I think the big key is, is we break everything down into smaller segments. So we're not expecting the dogs to work outside of the tasks that they know and understand. So we really do a good job of making sure that um, we're not creating any bad habits. So we're making um, everything easier for the dogs. We're setting the dogs up to succeed so we don't have to give that correction, which uh, when you talk traditional um, methods here in the U.S. that would usually involve direct pressure or indirect pressure from a shock collar. Since we don't use shock collars at this facility, we really set the dogs up to succeed and we kind of break everything down into smaller segments. That way when we're asking them to do a task, they understand what we're asking of them. And then another thing we do too is we make sure that our dogs understand what the word no means. Um, and typically if they're doing something we don't want, we give them that quick no. And then that's, we kind of equate that to almost a nick on a shock collar. So it gets their attention. They understand the behavior that's going on isn't what we're asking of them. And then, you know, typically it stops. Now, um, for us, that's, that's kind of the baseline of what we do up here. We really set the dogs up to succeed so we don't have to offer all the correction. So kind of on that note, so do you ever have kind of a stubborn dog that, um, you have to go beyond just saying no, or what? What kind of techniques would you use if you're not going to use a nick from a collar or something like that? It's really attrition-based training. Just repeat the task. Don't give them any other option but to complete complete that task. So if it's pile work and you're trying to line them to a specific pile, and they keep wanting to go to the other pile, you just make sure that there's no bumpers there for them to pick up, so they don't get that reward of the retrieve. So typically what we do is we make sure that eventually when you start out as a puppy, you're using a treat for um, the reward. Usually we'll use dry kibble. So the puppy sits, you give the puppy the kibble, you know, as a, as a sign of praise for them doing a good job. And then eventually you want to transition that to where that retrieve becomes the reward. So they're happy with that retrieve. They're happy with getting the bumper, that's their prize for doing a good job. So you just make sure you take all the other prizes away from them, that they have no other option but where you want them to go or what you want them to do. Um, and, you know, it, it can be a little more time-consuming. You have to put a little bit more thought into how you set up and what you're going to try to accomplish with each individual dog. But um, really for us, that's kind of kind of the way you have to do it. Do most of your most of your clients take the puppy at eight weeks and then send them back for you guys to train? That's in the typical situation. That's what happens. So typically, we'll send them home at eight weeks. We always suggest that uh, we don't want them back until their adult teeth come in. And then once their adult teeth come in, then we'll consider them ready for gun dog training, and then we'll take them back at that time. That's usually right around the six month time frame. So. From two or two months to six months, they're they're at their place, and then uh, usually we'll have them keep the retrieving very limited at the house during that time frame because we just don't want any bad habits to be created that we have to go back in and correct. So a lot of the habits, um, you know, if, if you're just throwing your puppy a ton of retrieves. They're teething, they got new teeth coming in, it hurts to pick up the, the bumper or the ball or whatever you're throwing. Then they start coming back and spitting it out because, you know, it's just uncomfortable to have it. Or the puppy realizes that, hey, the quicker I get this out of my mouth and back in his hand, the quicker he's going to throw it for me again. So a lot of people really want to focus on retrieving at that age, and that's kind of, you know, not the right time or the right place to do it. So, so, so someone that like myself, so Jordan and I are both in the same position. We both have dogs. Um, we both know our, 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 our knowledge on training is very limited compared to someone 
like yourself and um, we have just kind of done our best through um, research and reading and what have you um, so for someone like us would you suggest that we don't work on any retrieving until six months in you want to work on just enough to make them want more so you make it very excitable give them two retrieves a day and then you just take it away from them at that point so it's not something that they need a ton of repetition at that that age um because after a certain point you know we'll get dogs in and you can tell like um the first mark we throw them we may throw them a mark at 50 yards uh and they hit this indivisible wall at 25 yards and then they won't hunt past that so at that point in time, you kind of understand that, you know, maybe they had a ton of retrieves and, and their owner could only throw the bumper 25 yards. So the dog never had to go farther than that to find it. So now that's, and, and that's typically a big one or one that's not a big issue to work through. But that's some of the type of stuff that we can condition into the dogs without actually understanding that we're doing. So just by a bunch of repetition at that age, you're not really really doing anything for the dog in, in the long term anyways it's better to have the, the drive and the desire to retrieve there than to you know let's say throw 30 of the same retrieves every day it just doesn't really serve too much of a purpose at that age so do you uh with your training do you only uh train southern oak kennel dogs or do you guys train uh other dogs that are in the area um, on the very rare occasion, kennel dog, but, uh, we're probably 95% Southern kennel dogs up at this facility. Um, so basically that's something that we've either imported or, uh, it's straight out of one of our breedings. Gotcha. So kind of with, with that going on, do you have, I know you talk a lot about like early on and, and keeping the drive and and that kind of stuff and making sure you don't throw too many retrieves. So do you ever get a dog back from an owner um, where they've done some of those mistakes and you have to correct them? Oh, for sure. For sure we do. And uh, in those situations, you know, you kind of take a couple steps back to move forward. And that's, that's what we tell everybody is, is, you know, when you bring them in for training um, and we have to fix stuff that just takes longer and then it just kind of that progression as fast so if we have to fix a dog for two or three weeks that's two or three weeks we're not moving forward um so that's where some of that stuff can come into play a little bit and that's why you know i think barton was talking about uh, cornerstone being about the cost of one month of training um if you spend that money up front on cornerstone and you're following those things um, you're really giving your dog that head start because typically that first month you pay us, we're going to go back and fix the stuff that could have been um, avoided with the use of a program. So that's really kind of we tell everybody, you know, that kind of makes sense from our stand to, to do something like that, just to get them off to that good start. So when they come in uh, with us from day one, you know, we're ready to go. My dog, I, my dog has my dog's biggest problem is picking up birds on land. And yep. so when I trained her when she was young, I did. I started out with just working in the backyard, and I lived in the country and in fields and buried it and everything, and then moved it to the water. So when I started her, just about a year on her teal hunting, she did really, really good. Everything was in the water. We don't hardly ever hunt fields, and I was still working her in the yard and everything, and and I would vary it and go to fields and stuff. Um, but then the first time I realized she had this problem, it was like, I think maybe her second year or third year, we dropped a hen mallet out on the ice. She went over to it, wouldn't pick it up. And I had no idea she even had this problem at this point. Wouldn't bring it back. And I would work with her in the, in the, um, yard and everything. And, and she would do it. But ever since she's 12 now, gotcha, or all 11. And she still will not pick up anything on the ice. On I couldn't even possibly take her on a dove hunt or a field hunt of any kind at all. And my question to you is, have you ever seen anything like that? Is that something within her? Is that something? And I know you don't know what all I did in training, but would your thought be somehow I did something wrong in that? Was, I never got her past that. 
You know, in, in a situation like that, it could be just some quirk that the dog developed for, you know, whatever reason, or it could have been something that was done in training or most likely not done. But usually in a situation like that, it's, it's something that that dog's associating with that retrieve. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a tough one for sure. Yeah, I, and she, you know, she was when she was a pup. If I changed the color of a bumper, she wouldn't pick it up the first three, four, five times I did it. Any little change like that, yeah. she's like, nope. And that's um, that's something we've seen. I mean, you know, size. If you go from smaller diameter bumpers to the larger diameter, if you go from the rubber to canvas, if you go from some dogs are just. Uh, they're sensitive to that type of stuff. And, you know, we use, we use a bunch of different bumpers in our training. So they've had experience picking all of it. And, um, I'm sure after, uh, you guys have talked with Barton, you understand that we typically don't use force fetch in our training method. Um, so basically we just get them used to picking everything up that they can. And, uh, we really just kind of, you know, work through those issues as they arise. Mm. I took I took my dog through a force fetch, and she went through it really quickly. And I would really love to hear the flaw because I know that um, there's bait between force fetch and not force fetch. To hear your opinion on on the why, but when I took my dog Izzy through it, um, she's a real sensitive dog, so I didn't hardly have to apply, apply, apply any pressure at all. Yeah, um, and it worked really well. Um, it didn't work completely, but it, it did work really well to where she was picking up everything right when I told her to. She was coming and sitting down, and the, that's the problems that I was having was just wouldn't pick it up when I told her to. If I threw a retrieve, she would get it, but I couldn't get her to pick up anything I just asked her to. Um, she wasn't bringing it all the way back to hand some of the time. So my first question is, what would my steps have my, my steps have been? what would my alternative to force fetch be? And my second question would be, um, what are the negatives or why did you guys go completely away from force fetch altogether? Um, I'm going to start by saying that, uh, the early retrievers I had, the chassis and, uh, everything up prior to the British labs, I force fetched. I've force fetched dogs. I understand the, the philosophy behind it. Um, and why we got away from it up here specifically is the British and Irish lines um, are bred to want to deliver. They're bred to want to make you happy. They're bred to have the correct mouth. Um, so it's typically not an issue that we have with these dogs. Um, some people, you know, their system is a pressure-based system. So they run everything through force fetch anyways. So basically, you're teaching that dog on the bench in a controlled environment how to deal with that pressure. So you're giving them the pressure, and then as soon as you get the response that you want, you're removing the pressure. So basically, you're teaching them how to handle pressure when you're running through a force fetch system. The way we train, we don't really apply that pressure, so we don't need them to understand how to turn that pressure up. To me, force fetch is just another way to get a dog used to like a collar condition. So I'm going to ask you to do something with pressure, and then when you give me the desired response, I'm going to remove the pressure. Um, since we don't train with um, direct or indirect pressure from a collar or uh, you know anything along those lines, then that becomes less important our dog understand so it's negative reinforcement versus positive reinforcement the whole system basically is that would you say that um i'm not going to say it's all positive reinforcement we definitely have no's we definitely have refusals we definitely have denials um, you know you can't get through training the way we do it i mean even like a tug on the leash isn't necessarily reinforcement when you're working healing drills you know there's a little bit of pressure applied with the leash and uh you know they're definitely given no's and they definitely understand what that stuff means so to say there isn't any pressure i don't think is correct either but it's not an issue to where 
there's constant pressure, I guess. Um, so typically when our dogs go out on a blind retrieve, let's say, uh, if we're having issues, they're not going to get to the bird. They're not going to get the retrieve. We're not going to give them corrections all the way out to the blind. So um, it's, it's just different in that it's just a different way of looking at it, I think. So the drills we run are typically the same. I mean, there's, you know, the wagon wheel, walking baseball, ladder drill. All the drills, for the most part, up here are the same. We've just really adapted them to use uh, for use without pressure from a college. So to say we don't have any pressure, not. it's just different. Uh, kind of changing subjects a little bit. Um, <clears throat> with uh, your experience with other labs and Chessies and British labs, can you kind of give like a brief overview of how those three different types differ um, and kind of what the benefit is uh, compared to those other breeds um, to go with the, the British labs? Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm going to start out first by saying everything is a general one generalization doesn't fit every dog within that breed. But um, from my experience with the Chessies that I was running, um, they tend to learn at their own pace, and you aren't going to convince them any differently. They're a little more hard-headed and a little more stubborn. Um, take a little bit longer, I think, to mature from a training aspect. And their desire to please you wasn't as high as uh, the British bred Labradors we had. Um, that's one of the reasons I made the switch from Chesapeake's to the British Labs was specifically the British Labs that I had been around. I've had the ability to spend some time in the field with, watch them work. They were quiet in the blind. They didn't go until they were sent. They did the job that was in front of them, and they always appeared like they wanted to make their owners happy. Um, so that's one of the biggest reasons we made uh, the switch to the British Labs. Um, you know, back when I bought my first dog off of Barton, that was the reasoning behind it. I really wanted that dog that did what I wanted it to do in the field, and was that quiet dog in the house, was, um, you know, the family dog that really fit into any environment. So that's one of the huge takeaways from that British breed is, you know, even if you hunt hard and you hunt three or four months out of the year, that dog still has to live in the house with your family and be a part of the family for those, you know, other eight or nine months that you're not hunting this breed really just seems to fit that more. So does How many dogs do you live in your house? How many are at my house? Inside, I, yes. Inside right now, I think tonight, there's probably five or six. <laughs> <laughs> so. Have you, uh, have you had American Labs as well? Um, I, I have lab. Trainer here has. Um, those were from, you know, American field trialing. Uh, yeah, I've, my retriever um, experience has been with the Chesapeake Bays and fish ladders. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like a, a pretty full house then. You got six labs inside with you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep, for sure. <laughs> Any complaints with that many in the house? or? <laughs> um not really i mean they're all pretty chill you know they all find their own you know usually uh the daughters each have one with them and you know i'll inherit one or two throughout the day as i'm working on the computer or whatever i'm doing in the house you know you'll look down and you'll have a couple dogs by your feet that you know, <laughs> not really much notice i guess no, that sounds know, uh that sounds like an awesome deal for me, but my wife would not 
<laughs> be having it with that many dogs in the house. <laughs> yeah, we got we got a few. That's for sure. <laughs> so does uh, people what are their have... colors? All of mine right now in the house are black, with the exception of Sue. Is our one yellow female that's in the house? So he's kind of the oddball at the house. Now these uh, dogs are training, or how many we of these do you personally own? These are all personal dogs. Uh, they're all our personal dogs. So does that get difficult around hunting season, uh, deciding what which dog you're going to take out? Or um, yes, it does. Uh, it's gotten to the point where up here, you know, we have a few close friends who uh, put a lot of time in the field and you know need dogs to pick up birds and don't own their own yet. So. Um, We'll have a few friends run some dogs for the season. That way, you know, they're picking birds up. Because realistically, if we rotated dogs and everything worked out just absolutely perfect and we shot, you know, the amount of birds that we thought we were going to kill every hunt, they still wouldn't pick up enough. We're to that point now. Um, we really need people to hunt dogs for us. That way, they're getting their fair share of birds every year. Do you have to train those people on how to how to handle the dogs, or how does that part work? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, we've been fortunate enough to where a few of them have trained with us through where it's easy transition. Uh, one of our dogs is uh, with Goose Reapers Guided Outdoors in Oklahoma this year, Ivy. Uh, she was down there with uh, one of our buddies, Cody, um, picking up birds for him as he was guiding waterfowl down this year so that it got her on some birds and then another one of our friends up in west branch michigan uh took ashley one of our females for the year and uh you know put a ton of retrieves on her as well throughout the year for us so it definitely definitely helps them get some birds and then also you know like you had mentioned doing the training on the handler to get them used to how the dog's going to respond with the verbal and nonverbal cues and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, it's usually about a day, day's worth just to get them the basics on a finished dog. So, so don't, don't take this the wrong way at all, but um, with six dogs, it seems um almost like excessive <laughs> and like don't get me wrong like i said like i would love to have six dogs but my wife would think i was crazy yeah. and understand you from a training perspective but uh yeah. is there kind of a reason to having six is it like for you know going to training events or um is it just like you know uh so much of your passion you just own six hunting dogs yeah and that's what we do i mean these are some of my house eating females so that's where our puppies come from up here at the northern campus. So, uh, you know, on top of training, on top of running the dogs, that's that's where our business is, I guess. So Yeah, yeah, that makes sense um, for sure. You know, we've got the dogs in the house. I'm on the phone talking dogs while I'm answering emails about dogs and <laughs> updating Instagram and Facebook accounts with dogs. So, you know. <laughs> It's, it's definitely goes without saying that we are in the dog business for sure. Yeah, uh, it does. It consumes a really large portion of business. Definitely not a bad thing. <laughs> All right. Well, you want to jump to the lightning round, Elliot? I think it's a good Sounds time good. for that. Yeah. All do right. It. And before we jump to that, uh, quick word from one of our uh, partners on the podcast. Uh, Lights all is. Uh, a company that me and Elliot both have been using their headlamps this year uh, for waterfowling as, uh, as well as the torch and the quad light. Uh, definitely high quality products um, for us as waterfowlers. Having a super bright, super bright headlamp uh, when you get out there first thing in the morning is definitely very important and, and very useful. And I'm going out camping uh, next Saturday, so I'm going to have that quad with me. It'll be the perfect setup for that. Yeah, definitely good for setting up. And uh, let's jump right into the lightning round. So uh, lightning round, quick questions, quick answers. So we'll jump right into it. Uh, what kind of gun do you shoot? Uh, Winchester SX-3. Uh, what's your dream gun? 
anything that fires every time I pull the trigger. <laughs> have you, uh, have you uh, gone with single shots? <laughs> okay, something that fires every time I pull the trigger three times. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> have you ever, does that Winchester have problems sometimes? It's actually really good um, most of the time, but I mean, still, there's always that one time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> quick story on that note I have uh, my grandpa's A5, I shoot. That thing's a workhorse, a tank. Um, barely ever will I have a jam or an issue. And we had a pintail buzz over us this year. Uh, like 15 yards and it was a passing shot 15 yards overhead and i pulled the trigger the first shot and i miss and my gun jams and i couldn't believe it so (laughs) you're right having a dream gun is one that doesn't doesn't malfunction uh because if i had those two other shots i feel like i would have put down my first pintail so indiana pintail we almost never see him exactly uh what kind of ammo do you shoot uh boss ammo and uh, what kind of shot size do you use for ducks? Uh, five shot. And for geese? Fives and fours. Wow. <laughs> Is that uh, due to the, the boss shot yeah, and the higher density? The bismuth, uh, you know, it's kind of a throwback to the old lead days. We've been shooting the two and three quarter inch fours and fives up here, and I... Uh, haven't really had the need to go any bigger on shot size or, uh, you know, move up to the three inch offering even, uh, just the pattern density and the energy seems to be, you know, kind of a winning combination for us. So. Oh, wow. What's your range on those geese with those fours and fives? Um, go. So just to preface, I guess last year I shot a lot of, three inch one shot at everything it was ducks and geese mallards geese we we shot three inch one shot i'm probably at least 10 yards better with the fours and fives than the three inch one steel Um, we don't try to do a lot of long distance shooting but i'm comfortable at 40 and 50 yards all day long now i still hit the bird at that distance but the, the shot definitely gets the job done if you can put it on the target oh i've never shot a heavy metal i started duck hunting right around the change from yep. the steel where all the old timers were just so angry yep me too i mean my, my first mallard duck was probably killed with two and three quarter inch six shots so lead yeah. um <laughs> so yeah I, I i can relate a little bit i guess i just I didn't have the luxury of shooting lead for many years, I guess. I, I definitely remember it. That, those first couple of years with steel, we wounded so many birds until my dad started reloading and getting the higher, higher velocities, yep. and then all of a sudden, problem solved. I, it was I mean, a mess for a while. Yeah, to me, you know, the, the, the pattern density issues, the steel shots definitely came a long way. Um, with aftermarket choke tubes and all this other stuff. But literally, you know, the boss ammunition now brings all these old waterfowl guns back into play. So, you know, the old fixed choke 16 gauges or, you know, your grandpa's gun literally, you know, that's back into play with this stuff. Sure. Awesome. Uh, next question I normally ask is three inch or three and a half, but uh, you just said it two and three quarter. Two and three quarter. Yep. All righty. Uh, beard or no beard? Um, right now, no beard, but during hunting, definitely beard. You have like a full grown out beard, or <laughs> as full as it will grow out beard. Yes. Nice. Yeah, I, I grow mine out from September till into goose season, and yep. that's about as long as my wife can tolerate it. So, are you gonna shave the whole thing, Jordan? I mean, I don't go like bare naked on the face or anything. I <laughs> I leave a beard on there. <laughs> yeah, mine mine's been gone about two or three weeks, maybe. I think we we lost you there. What what was that? Oh, mine's been gone for a couple weeks now. Gotcha um face mask or face paint or none um none uh let's go i'm gonna add a new one to the the mix uh a frame or layout 
A-frame all day. We've been hearing that a lot more. <laughs> yeah, we, we call them sleigh frames. We hunt out of them if we can. <laughs> uh, we have really good luck with them. So, yeah, definitely, definitely A-frame. Awesome. And uh, what is your uh, favorite uh, terrain to hunt? Um, mine is Big Canada's. Big Canada. So dry fields. Dry field Canada's for sure. Nice. And uh, am I missing any, Elliot? Nope. You got them all. All right. So I guess a, a good part to jump into uh, here we kind of briefly discussed it, but uh, go ahead and briefly kind of talk about um, your hunting that you have in your area. Hunting we do in our area being in South Central Michigan, just, you know, there's not a huge variety. It's a lot of big geese, mallards, and wood ducks. Um, early on, we may shoot some occasional teal. Uh, probably the same as you in northern Indiana. Very rarely would we get the chance at a pintail, and if we do, it's probably not sprigged out. You know, widgeon and gadwall aren't super rare, but it's not like you're ever going to set up targeting gadwall widgeon. It's typically mallards and big geese. Um, we do a lot of, you know, dry feeds on wheat, um, seed corn, just you know field corn and then also feedlot cattle ponds um, very rarely are we on a lake or a river with the riparian rights up here you know you pretty much have to have uh, permission from from the landowner who you're hunting yeah so 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 for us it's mostly just dry feeds and you know cattle lot feedlot Alrighty. Sounds, yeah, that sounds very similar to Indiana. We do get, I think we do get more mallards than what you're kind of saying. Um, and kind of our best bet on those seem to be kind of the cattle, uh, ponds or, you know, areas like that or, uh, but yeah, we don't get the huge migration. I think in my experience, the further South we go in Indiana, especially Southwest, the better the waterfowl gets as far as the migration and I've never heard anyone explain it kind of one thing you mentioned before the podcast um started was that you you kind of attributed that to the Great Lakes kind of eating up part of the migration um yeah I mean from my experience you know you look Illinois um they usually have a decent migration and they set right at the bottom of Lake Michigan so as as that water kind of follows that lake down it ends right there at the top of Illinois, so that that feeds that state with you know the Mississippi Flyway, and then on the other side we have Lake Erie kind of doing the same thing. So it just funnels the birds right around the part of the state. You know, we did we get a fairly decent amount of big Canadas, but you know we're not seeing the migrating mallards here until you know typically our season's already out. Seeing the huge dry feeds here; those are, you know, kind of that last push of birds that hasn't, you know, migrated yet. They're hanging on to the to the bitter end. Hmm. I've kind of always wondered why, because um, I've noticed that too in our area. Why they don't push the season back, um, maybe into January? Some. Yeah, and for us, you know, they're trying to keep all the people who hunt the bay and who hunt the Great Lakes and all that stuff happy as well as the people who are hunting inland so when the, those guys freeze out they're losing opportunity so it, it's just hard for them to balance this state because of you know keeping the great lake hunters and the inland hunters uh, you know both happy at the same time hmm. have they ever thought about cutting the state into zones i'm in kansas and we have four different zones in our state um they carve it up perfectly for the shallow real shallow um, areas the southwest part of the state the northeast part they've really carved it up they, they've carved ours up into three zones i think with the uh, up being a zone zone so basically the southern zone still 
captures, you know, the Lake Michigan shore and Saginaw Bay and in those areas. So I think they try to do a good job with it, but, uh, you know, like anything else, there's always room. So where are you at? Um, I don't know how specific you want to be, but what part of Michigan are you in? We are in the very south central part of Michigan. We're just south of I-94, about 15 minutes out of Battle Creek. So like the Battle Creek, Kalamazoo area. So you're probably, I'm, I'm actually uh, uh, in the northern central part of Indiana. So we're probably an hour, hour and a half apart. Yeah, we're probably two hours from I think uh, I think we lost you there for a second. Oh, we're about two hours uh, from Fort. Okay, gotcha. All righty. Uh, do you got any other additional questions, Elliot, on the dog training side of things? Um, I don't think so. It's I love having dog guys on here. Um, for us novices, it's just super fascinating. <laughs> I, I just I, I wish we could have them on more often because it's just I love the topic. Something <laughs> I certainly want to grow in. My oh I do I have one more question I was going to ask. Uh, so my dog's eleven now. Yep. And she tore her basically her ACL. Yep. Um, and I didn't have the money to do a traditional surgery. So what they did is they kind of went in there with some type of monofilament line and wrapped it together and fixed it. It's a somewhat of a new procedure. Gotcha. Um, and are you familiar just from that little bit of information are you familiar with the procedure i'm talking about i'm gonna knock on wood that we haven't had any procedure okay. and i know you know these dogs are fairly athletic and it's just like anything else i think that's one of the selling points for the british dog a little bit smaller so they don't have all that weight turning at that, you know, they don't have all that weight on those joints while they're turning and moving at those high rate speeds. So, well, she, not she to has, say it won't happen, but it's not as likely to happen. Yeah. She, she had the surgery done. It happened hunt number one this year. So teal season, early September yep. had the procedure done. A um, couple months later, I had her back in the field. It seemed like it, it aged her in, in yep. all areas. She just acts older now. She acts older yep. in the house. But so I'm I'm trying not to hunt her back to back days and yep. and be real patient with her, um, and she has a little arthritis in her left shoulder, which she's had since she was yep. about eight. So I don't I want to hunt her next year, but I don't want to over push her. I know she still wants to do it. When do you know when to just retire the dog? I guess is the question. That's one of those things that you know, kind of you and the. Out of us, you know, we don't want that time to come, so it's a little bit easy to get greedy with it. But, mm. uh, you know, you'll both for sure. Yeah, you know, you'll right. come to that. You'll, I, you'll you'll come to that. It's not a fun one to come to, but you'll definitely come to that. I am not looking forward to it. And I, I my gut feeling and the way she acts is that I'm good to hunt her. I just can't push her too hard. I can't do a lot of back-to-back -back yeah. days. And that's one of the things I've heard. Like I said, I don't have experience with it. When they have yell go on, start overusing the other the other leg because of the injury to that one, and then that one become more susceptible to to being injured. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard I've heard that as well, and I don't want to. I want her I, after I retire. I'd like for her to live as long as possible. Yeah. So it's a balance between I don't want to push her too hard to where she has injuries that just yeah you know. And that's everybody's goal is to enjoy these. You know, we're training you a dog for a specific purpose, but at the end of the day, it's your dog. You need to enjoy your. That dog fits into your family unit. What's what's best for you? So, so that's kind of what we always leave everybody with. Is at the end of the day, it's your job, your dog. Enjoy your dog. Do what's best for you and that. That's really all. You yeah. So. 
All right. Well, I'll keep all that in mind. That's I'm glad I didn't forget to answer that question or ask yeah. that question. Thank you. No problem. All righty. And I guess I do have a couple more specific questions about Southern Oak Kennels before uh-huh. we get this all wrapped up. But do you guys advertise um, your pricing on pups? Um, I don't think we really advertise. Once somebody fills out a puppy application, uh, that's typically when we reply back with pricing and then all the frequently asked questions, you know, it's, it's all kind of in our, in our basic reply at that time. Okay. So is it like a one general type of price or do you have a, a price it's, you can share with people or is it specific to the litter? standard price right now and now, right now. It doesn't matter what breeding you jump on. It doesn't matter what pairing. They're all. What was the number again? $2,500. Okay. Gotcha. I think you cut out. And then uh, do you have a a set price for your training? Um, Training right now. Basic gun dog and finished gun dog training. Alrighty. Well, thank you again for coming on. Um, can you give a shout out real quick, uh, or not a shout out, but, uh, uh, let everyone know where they can find you on, uh, social media, um, places like that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, SOK North is our, and Southern Oak is our Facebook page. Again, uh, the main Facebook pages, Southern Oak Kennels, and uh, Southern Oak Kennels on Instagram. And also, we do have uh, Southern Oak Kennels Society on Facebook. Um, that's kind of a private group where, you know, there's a lot of good dog discussion, of, you know, training and uh, everything else that takes place in there. Really, a really positive group We keep, uh, you know, all the disagreements to uh, a meet, uh, minimum and also, uh, you know, it's just a place for everybody to kind of show the progress they're making with their dog or if they're having any issues, the uh, fix. Awesome. All righty. Well, thanks again for coming on. We really appreciate it. Always great to talk duck gun or duck dogs rather. Um, I mean, Elliot, are big big time dog people and uh it's great to see your experience and uh, have you on to answer all the questions and um yeah so that's all we got for tonight i am jordan from duck gun chronicles elliot from freelance duck hunting and don from southern oak kennels and we'll see you guys next time